Welcome to Chaotica, land of chaos, where imagination is the prevailing state of mind. This is Michelangelo from Stride speaking, and today I'm talking to Janos Amstutz. He's the founder of augmented reality platform Beam. He grew up in Australia in a hippie community with parents supporting counterculture. So his perception of human interactions and how we communicate is extremely interesting and different from what we see in normal society. And today uh, I have him to explore the concept of augmented reality which is opposite to virtual reality will you shelter yourself augmented reality in first on top of the real world a startup beam has raised around 4.5 million dollars from ascension and five lion ventures and it enables users to communicate live or on demand between each other on augmented reality so that would be me picking up my phone pointing it somewhere and i see a full body image of whoever I want to talk to. They're completely platform agnostic, so I could be wearing my AR glasses and see someone. And now that we're slowly getting to more clear, transparent AR glasses design, you can see where this is going. I can have a hologram of my friend right in front of me talking to me. Thank you to partners of the show, Citizen of Taj again, for the incredible support. And as always, follow the signal. Before we dive into the beautiful world of artificial reality, uh, augmented reality, and virtual reality, um, would love to start with your background because I think it's particularly unique and it's a good starting point to understand why you're focusing on on uh, augmented reality. Uh, so why don't you give us a segue of like your journey and where you started? Sure, thanks. Um, most founders will always say they have a unorthodox founder story. Um, mine started off in Switzerland. I'm Swiss. Uh, my parents are Swiss. Switzerland is known for being very conservative, um, very kind of straight and narrow. Um, you know, the, the, the biggest innovations out of Switzerland is you know, finance and biotech. Um, and my parents didn't fit the mold of Switzerland. Um, my parents were both black sheep of their respective families and um, lived a very alternative hippie lifestyle, uh, even in Switzerland. So, so not, not necessarily the drug side of things, but more the utopian, you know, clean eating, clean living, you know, low uh, impact on the environment lifestyle. And they'd always dreamed of uh, moving somewhere to create their own new utopia. Um, and Switzerland just didn't seem to fit the mold for that. Um, along came uh, a nu nuclear power accident in the mid-80s, Chernobyl, uh, which uh, spooked a lot of Europe at the time. And my parents used that as their excuse um, to um, set up a new life in Australia. So they moved as far away from their families and from Switzerland as possible. They kind of had this, this idea that if they were moving away, they would go all in. And uh, so they, they flew as far away as they could, uh, left Switzerland, Switzerland on Friday the 13th. Uh, lucky, lucky day. Um, I had no choice in the matter. I was just a child. Um, and uh, we landed um, in a small town called Byron Bay in Australia. Uh, if anyone knows Byron Bay, they know it's pretty alternative. Uh, but my parents went all in on that as well and uh, purchased some land on a hippie community. Um, built their own house, uh, solar power, rainwater, veggie garden, chickens, 
uh, a cow. Um, one. One cow. What was the name? Bruna. Bruna. Was the name. She was a Swiss brown. Um, uh, the the running joke is that if, if Swiss people leave Switzerland, they will never trust the dairy uh, mm. of another country. So we had to create our own kind of yogurt and cheese and and so on because the dairy of uh, the, the dairy products in Australia just weren't up to scratch uh, for our very high bar of, of, of quality of, of Swiss. That's how it goes. I feel the same here in the UK, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, the cow was the bane of my existence because it meant I couldn't watch morning TV. I uh, had to milk the cow. And, um, uh, but for me, morning TV was, was different also because uh, our solar power system couldn't handle a big color TV. We had this tiny black and white TV uh, around about the size of an iPhone screen. Uh, wow. And that's very small. Yeah. So, so uh, the... Um, the concept of don't don't sit too close to the TV or your eyes will get square didn't, uh, exist. didn't exist for us because we had to do it to be able to watch. So it was basically virtual reality and me. It was almost that, yeah, <laughs> full full field of view. Uh, and for me, the Simpsons were grayscale, uh, which uh, was exciting when I went to my friends' places when I was a child and I could actually see which colors uh, different cartoons were. Um, yeah, so so basically I grew up as as a very alternative child my parents um, tried to be as kind of against the grain or counterculture as possible, uh, raising us uh, and uh, the, the way that kind of our lifestyle was as kids. Um, and for all, um, for all, you know, children growing up like that, you'd think, you know, it retrospectively, you know, now uh, in 2022, if someone hears that you grew up as a hippie child running up barefoot, in the forest with you know organic fruit and vegetables from your garden they'd say that would be that would have been that must have been amazing you must have had such a great childhood uh, but for me i felt like i was disadvantaged i felt like i was being punished uh, because i didn't get what all the other kids got i didn't get a normal upbringing i didn't get access to tech um, i didn't have consumerism in in my household um, and so when i when I was old enough to leave home, when I finished my schooling, I rebelled uh, and punished my parents for giving me such a shitty upbringing cool. uh, and flew back to Europe uh, and, uh, and got, a, got a white collar job, um, or as my parents would call it, uh, being a global agent of destruction. Uh, so yeah, so, so like, you know, it, in a weird kind of happenstance, and you know, I'd love to talk about this a little bit later in the, in, in the discussion, but kind of beam is me trying to come full circle um, to be doing something uh, that aligns to how I grew up uh, as as a, as a child, and, and what sort of kind of morals and aspirations and uh, thought processes you know my family had uh, growing up on a hippie community. No, but let, let's go there. I think it's interesting. And uh, what kind of thought processes did you have as a hippie community, and um, what did they mean to you as a kid, and what did they mean to you right now? So what was really interesting um, was for me, the hippie lifestyle was normal. Um, it was what I knew and everything else was shiny and new and exciting, you know, like the normal city upbringing or, you know, even having, you know, proper electronics, not having to switch the lights off at 7 p.m. Um, and uh, what, what I knew as a, as a basically a hippie child was a very... Uh, communal uh, and very intimate uh, community of people living very close together 
it was 40 families uh, all living on this uh, large forest block. We, we had infrastructure that, you know, the, the entire community built, a uh, mm. pottery kiln, uh, a baker. Um, we had, you know, uh, dams for water, uh, built the road system ourselves. Uh, and what was what was the most interesting and what I just thought was normal for the world was the way that we communicated and interacted with each other. Multi-family dinners, uh, if it was someone's birthday, everyone would come from the entire community. You know, music playing in the garden with, you know, live musicians. Um, and just like a really, really uh, close relationship with other individuals. Uh, and our lack of technology um, uh, was uh, a huge benefit to that communication because we didn't have the telephone to call each other. There was just, you know, one two-way radio that the entire community would hear. So, for example, if I, uh, if I would call my friend, uh, you know, I was a child, he was, you know, you know also the same age as me. If I'd call him uh, and, you know, ask if he wants to come and play, um, the entire community would know because the entire community has the same channel of the two-way radio. So communication was very... Very intimate, so how very do, close. How do you use that? How do you know when you're actually allowed to use the radio channel? Everyone just had respect for it. Um, and if if you have that communal uh, way to interact with each other, there's there's that sense of respect. Uh, and so you don't say anything um, uh, anything too intimate that you know the entire community needs to hear. If you want even more intimate communication, you do something very simple. You literally walk two minutes, five minutes down the forest track or down the road and you knock on their door and you have a conversation. Uh, and for me, that was normal. Um, that, that we as human beings would just interact like that on a very intimate basis. After how many people, because how, how big was the hippie community that you could still have a self-sufficient ecosystem where uh, you know, you were having everything that you needed, but also, it, you know, everything was very respectful in terms of communications. When do you think it becomes too large where that doesn't work anymore? It's very interesting. I don't think it's got to do with size. And uh, so we, we weren't entirely self-sufficient. It was more like supplementation. Okay. Um, there was still the need to go to the grocery store and, you know, buy things. We didn't butcher animals apart from the chickens. Um, so if we wanted uh, meat, then we would buy it from the local store or the farmer's market or a farm close by. But, um, what's interesting with, um, these communal, uh, relationships is it's almost a, a test of time. So the, the, uh, time changed the dynamics of this community, um, where maybe people knew each other too well. Um, maybe, you know, some grievances that were years old were never resolved. And so I, I don't think it was necessarily a, a case of size because it was, you know, 40 families, probably about, you know, 100, 120 individuals. Um, and it wasn't, there, there was no issues with the size. It was more around kind of the evolution of the way that people interact with each other over, over time. Okay. And so what gets corrupted? Um, in terms of the corruption, I, I think... Um, there's, uh, the human nature, uh, of individuals, uh, and what's interesting with, uh, human nature is if we are in a hippie community and we are so close, um, and the communication is, is so intimate, um, that gets, uh, amplified. So corruption in terms of relationships and, and friction gets amplified, which is why 
perhaps as we're a global society, we've been pushing back on intimate communication very heavily uh, and moved to uh, less intimate ways for us to communicate. Things like text messaging, things like uh, email, um, uh, even video conferencing doesn't give you the same psychological sense of um, intimacy, connection, trust uh, that uh, a physical interaction gives you. So perhaps if you look at kind of us as a global society, uh, we have uh, stepped back uh, and hid behind technology for communication. That's very interesting because you think that intimacy can be a catalyzer of whatever emotion is present there. And in this specific case, it, it can be negative, but it can also be positive. But we are decided to slowly step back, you think? So what was interesting for me is, as I said, uh, the the intimate way that we communicated on this community was the normal for me. I thought that's just how everyone interacted with each other. But it's not. But it's not. So when I left, when I went, uh, I moved back to Switzerland, became a commodities trader, white-collar job, um, you know, worked with multiple global firms, um, trading physical commodities. Uh, suddenly, you know, from having this these intimate connections, there was these very superficial connections, using email, using the telephone. Back then, that was what would have been 2008. Uh, video conferencing was even kind of a, a thing that hardly anyone touched. Um, it was either um, email, telephone, or you know maybe we meet at a conference mm -hmm. once a year uh, for that bit of face-to-face -face interaction to shake the hand. Um, but yeah, so so. I, I then realized in the real world um, that we're using a lot of technology for communication over distance um, that doesn't provide anywhere near that same amount of connection or intimacy. So, but um, it's interesting that we can draw almost a, a history of, of how communication evolved. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's funny that you had your micro experience, but we also had a macro experience. If you want to, if we want to map back, uh, map that back out to how communication evolved as a whole. Uh, do we want to go there? On yeah, sure. How it used to be. Okay. I, 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 love, I love this topic. Run us through the evolution. So, so basically, um, like you said, I had this micro experience where the way that we communicated was very low tech. Uh, so it was almost like going back to the days before technology provided other alternatives. Mm -hmm. And so we had that ability uh, to create an, a, a normal format for face-to-face -face communication mm -hmm. or communal communication um, however you know over hundreds and hundreds of years um, uh, the, the world us as humanity have become a very globally connected society um, you know maybe in the stone age there wasn't a whole need like a, a real need to connect to you know, tribes in another location uh, but as kind of empires grew larger um, uh, societies grew more complex the need for us to communicate uh, became a communication over distance challenge. It was no longer possible to get everyone in the same room. And so uh, we forged um, innovative ways uh, to facilitate communication over distance. This whole evolution of communication over distance is really exciting uh, because um, we've always tried to figure out the best way to communicate uh, with the technologies we had at the time. For example, you know, in the Stone Age, there there was all uh, also this ability to communicate over distance and time, which was things like cave paintings, which gave um, 
gave the next season or the next generation knowledge uh, who aren't there right now um, of you know what was hunted, uh, what animals are available in the area, maybe um, what individuals were important with you know, handprints on the wall uh, to be able to communicate. Um, and then uh, the first real-time communication after things which were a bit less effig- uh, efficient like horse riders, marathon runners, carrier pigeons uh, was Morse code which was a huge breakthrough. Uh, the ability for an empire to communicate almost in real time through relay stations um, across uh, thousands of miles uh, was an incredible invention. Uh, but given the low-tech nature, all you had was words on a paper. Um, so there's no intimacy there at all, apart from if it might have been a poem. Um, and But that was the best technology we had at the time. Um, and... This evolution of communication has always been an evolution of how can we create the next evolution to communication that's more credible, that can provide more information. Uh, And information is not just words on a page, otherwise we would have stopped at Morse code. Um, It's also uh, the nuances in speech, uh, identifying who the individual is, and that's why the telephone was invented. The ability for me when I was a child uh, to get to know my grandparents in Switzerland was over the telephone. Uh, and I knew them from the sound of their voice. Um, and I could identify them through the sound of their voice and the way that they spoke. And so the telephone was this incredible next level invention that allowed us to figure out who was on the other side and get some of these small nuances in um, the most important parts of communication aside from the words being said is how can we uh, transfer that information? One, credibly, two, efficiently, uh, and three, to build trust. Um, and so there's a lot of psychology behind communication, which makes it one of the most complex things that we ever do in our life. Um, and um, the technology, the telephone, also wasn't enough for us to communicate efficiently over distance, mm-hmm. uh, which is why um, video conferencing was invented by AT&T in 1968. Uh, so video conferencing has been around for that long, uh, basically using a television and a telephone. Uh, and what that allowed was to, for you to start reading the nuances in facial expression uh, and start to get triggers that can build trust in that communication. So tr- uh, trust here is the key word, or is it is it more how real it feels? What, like, what's the bottom line? So if you break down communication into a very Swiss, this is a very Swiss way, if you break down the communication into efficiency and effectiveness, Um, the aim of communication is for you to transfer information and for that information to be received and received in the way that you want it to be received um, for an outcome. Uh, Whether that's um, for you to convince someone that you care about them or convince someone of a sale uh, in business or convince someone um, that what you're saying is correct. Uh, And so breaking down communication to that factor the most important, um, the most important building blocks of communication is is the effective transfer and the effective receipt of that information. And if you if you then bundle that into a conversation, it's the bi-directional nature of that um, that transfer and receipt of information that is key uh, for communication to happen. If you can't effectively transfer information and it's not effectively received, there's no point in communicating. Um, and so our technology evolution here, unless it's art. Unless, 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 unless it's, it's art. art right? Unless it's art, yeah. 
I would say. I'm not sure, but it feels like art is the only type of communication in which you're okay with being misinterpreted. Because right. Not inherently. So artistic expression. Right. Um, and that, but that would also then breaking it down into me being very technical in Swiss. That would be where the artist would want to uh, leave interpretation open to the communication, the transfer of their communication. Uh, right. Uh, they, they they would do that. Um, uh, uh, objectively uh, for the outcome of leaving it vague and open to the interpretation of the receiver. So it, so it, there's, there's always an outcome, right? Okay. And, and the outcome, uh, if, if, you, if you don't want an outcome to communication, then uh, maybe communication isn't, isn't required. Um, and when you look at the technology evolution, we went from um, you know, video conferencing, which has been around for a long time, but has only just more recently, um, kind of in two stages, become um, very effective and interesting. Um, the first stage was, you know, the launch of Skype, um, where uh, communication using video conferencing became uh, mainstream, mainly on the consumer side of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, where the intimacy uh, or the the, commu- the outcome of the communication um, is at its lowest hanging fruit level, and that is... Uh, a very emotional um, uh, format for communication around your know, loved ones and and telling people that you care, connecting with relatives overseas. Um, that's a very low hanging emotional uh, fruit for communication. Is if you can um, if you can create an emotional response that's, that's a very deep rooted response in a human being, uh, then that's a great go to market for Skype, for example. Yeah, I mean, it feels like with Skype, it was sort of the first step in which you include that such an important sense, which is sight, right? Yeah. It didn't really have that. I mean, live sight. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so that's big emotional jump. Yeah, an, an absolutely incredible um, go-to-market by Skype and you know, the, the way that, they're, that the technology went to market and just absolutely exploded. Were, it was incredible. They were leveraging emotion as their go-to-market? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, the, the human connection. Uh, and that was 18 and a half years ago. Um, but in the business context, um, video conferencing has only really become super mainstream in the past three years, uh, where we had a catalyst, and this is that second big leap, uh, where um, communication in person was not possible. And so instead of trying to find uh, a better communications tool than the telephone, it was the reverse solution. It was, we want this human connection in person, but we can't have it. So video conferencing is the next best thing. Um, and um, that was that, that kind of catalyst for now. It's incredible. Everyone can video conference to their heart's desire, um, which is a great evolution for us because uh, we're able to transfer more intimacy, more trust, and more credibility through technology, which is a fantastic evolution for us. I mean, it feels like we really cracked uh, the emotional connection that you can create with communication at scale because we were able to call but then we bumped it up with the emotional connection it, it's very interesting what you said previously that also that is um, I never thought about it but communication you, you pr- propose it like a consequence of two things as a self-standing wave but also as a consequence of the expansion of society so society itself enlarges and then communication it needs to catch up because we are acquiring those intimate relationships. I always thought the opposite, that usually is like 
communication reaches a new level and then we can expand as a society. But it's probably can happen both ways. What do you say? Is, is it mutually exclusive or? I think it depends on the tech, but in terms of communication, uh, I think it's definitely the need was there. Uh, the need was pushing innovation to happen. Uh, and we can, we can dive down the rabbit hole in the metaverse later to figure out if there's a need for the metaverse to happen. Um, but yeah, I think, I think with, uh, with the evolution uh, of what we've done with communication over distance, uh, is a case of communication over distance is a big problem. Um, miscommunication over distance is a massive problem for us as, as a society. We don't understand each other well enough as a global society uh, to really effectively be able to coexist and live together without misunderstandings and miscommunication. Right. Um, and so the challenge of you know cracking the code to creating the perfect communication solution uh, that provides all the same triggers as a physical meeting, um, but using technology over distance uh, is something that is incredibly powerful and incredibly important to us, which is why you know, we've always evolved our way to communicate. And um, looking at Skype, although you know, we've had this explosion uh, of video conferencing solutions, you know, Zoom did extremely well in the pandemic, uh, and you know, there's five or six other video conferencing tools that are incredibly uh, successful, uh, they still don't provide the same psychological triggers or subconscious triggers that we get in a physical face-to-face. -face. Right. It's the reason why you and I are sitting in the same room right now. Uh, it's the reason why uh, people still meet physically. It's the reason why uh, large corporates are asking employees to come back to office. Um, that even though uh, video conferencing was an incredible tool to fill a need uh, during the pandemic and will remain a very relevant solution because it's better than a phone call. Um, I don't know too many people that just connect on a phone call these days, especially in business. Um, but uh, it's not sufficient. Uh, there is still a need for us to continue to innovate. There is some little holes or big holes that we still need to really exactly before we gather. Okay, so what do you think we are doing really well so far and what are the missing steps that we're gonna need to get to the full presence of communication? So so breaking down communication from saying it's it's the transfer of information, the reception of information. Um, it's the effectiveness of that, mm -hmm. the, the trust uh, factor, the credibility factor, the intimacy is a psychological problem rather than a technical problem. And this is where um, I think sometimes in the tech world, uh, we often omit the psychological aspects of what we're doing um, and the way that we receive uh, these technologies uh, and we focus more on you know, how do we tech crack the code using technology, using uh, software, hardware, uh, systems. Um, and so when you look at communication, it's, it's a very psychologically intensive thing. The way that uh, we as a human being react with uh, to another human being or interact with another human being is different from how we interact with anything else on this planet, from any object, from any animal, uh, from uh, anything else that we see. Uh, the subconscious and psychological triggers happening between two humans uh, is the most complex thing that happens. Um, there's obviously different different scales to that when you get to like intimacy with you know um, someone that you're 
um, you're in love with, uh, to business conversations, there's a huge broad spectrum of that. Uh, but uh, fundamentally, it's a psychological challenge to overcome. Interesting. And considering it's the most complex thing that we know of, how do we solve it if we don't really understand it? So we do understand quite a bit. Uh, we understand that our subconscious has a number of um, of triggers and a number of uh, things that need to be satisfied for effective communication and interaction. Um, things like voice, nuances in speech, um, facial expressions that we can read. Uh, and these all come about um, as a way for us to solve on a very primal level um, uh, the uh, fight or flight mechanism initially uh, between two humans. Uh, a long, long time ago, uh, another human being uh, in our uh, vicinity was the most dangerous thing in our vicinity. So like another human being uh, in the forest was the most dangerous uh, predator, so to speak. Uh, and we have these, this, this primal instinct uh, to other human beings. It's the same reason why uh, when we walk down the street and someone walks towards us and comes within our comfort zone, our subconscious forces our eyes to scan that human being. Firstly, look into their eyes and scan that human being to determine if uh, that human being is safe to be in our space. We often don't even realize it's mm -hmm. happening until we both do it at the same time and it's awkward. We lock eyes and we're like, oh shit, I didn't realize I was checking you out. Um, no, but also like most times you do lock eyes independently yeah. because it's, uh, you do want to see the eyes specifically as well. That can happen also, mm -hmm. uh, specifically around when you're looking for that validation. Yeah. And in communication, we're looking for that same credibility, trust, safety on a much more deeper level because there's, there's a credible, uh, tangible exchange of information uh, with an outcome that we want from that other individual. So sort of double opt-in that is like, ah, yeah, we're both safe, we're both okay. Exactly. Okay. Which is why, you know, over thousands and thousands of years of communication, we as human beings have optimized ourselves for physical, in-person, face-to-face interactions. And that satisfies our subconscious. Had we had the tech, would probably have been different. If we had Zoom 2,000 exactly. years ago. Yeah, there may have been a completely different evolution to the way that we, to the way that we, um, the way that we interacted. Uh, and absolutely, and, and talking about, and this is a long segue to, to answer uh, your question, the, uh, the things that we can do to improve communication over distance from more than something like Zoom is to psychologically um, bridge that gap in credibility and intimacy that is lacking in video conferencing, but that we have with a physical in-person meeting. Uh, and there's still a gap. Um, it's, it's evident for anyone. Um, the educational system is struggling from what they call Zoom fatigue, but really it's a, it's a fatigue of, uh, of uh, having a gap in the intimacy and the transfer of information. You think so? Uh, it's, fatigue it's, not, it's, not, it's, it's not just the, 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 the screen fatigue because individuals can, can watch screens. I mean, if you look at your iPhone, uh, screen tracker and see how long you've been looking at an iPhone for, it's probably the same as a workday for most people. It's the, it's the, uh, the intimacy gap and the gap in the, the communication that we don't have using technology that we used to have physically. So some of those Lego bricks that make up the ineffective yeah. 
deep communication are missing. And we really feel that after a few hours of communicating that way. Absolutely. And um, some of those bricks, bricks that are missing um, are those exact triggers that the subconscious isn't receiving, uh, that it's used to receiving in an in-person meeting. And why do we get fatigued, do you think? Like, what does that cause tiredness? Because we're trying to read so much into it? Why is that? It, it could be that. I'm, I'm not 100% sure uh, of, uh, of the nuances in uh, why it would cause us uh, to become tired. Uh, but the, the deficit in, in the communication um, is something that is, is, is definitely a, um, a, a thing that we as human beings can solve if we would just do one of two things. Go back to in-person communication, which isn't feasible, uh, given we're so globally dispersed. And even from um, the last two years, we've become more isolated physically. Of course. Um, or solve it. Yeah, just a, just a, just a touch. Um, and then, uh, on the other sides, um, what we could do is we could improve technology, um, to satisfy those things that are missing for our subconscious, which is basically what I've been building for the past five years. Right. So that was, uh, I think this is good for us to go into augmented reality and beam, um, specifically how let's talk about augmented reality so what is the broad category uh, category of augmented reality what's the definition for it and why do you think that it can fill those missing gaps so uh, specifically on communication i think augmented reality is a tool that enables our subconscious uh, to receive similar triggers and i'll love to dive deep into that but first and foremost uh, augmented reality, along with things like virtual reality, mixed reality, extended reality, all these bu buzzwords, the metaverse, all these buzzwords that um, uh, that people are trying to make popular around different technologies, maybe some uh, for as a vanity metric for their interpretation. Um, but uh, the entire ecosystem uh, is essentially the ability for us uh, to compute, uh, i.e. to consume uh, experiences and data um, with technology uh, in a completely new way. Um, and this new way uh, for it to work uh, needs to be an evolution um, that is a better experience than the previous. The previous experience is basically the one that we have now, you know, smartphone screens, um, which is the product of uh, kind of a long uh, evolution of uh, our technological capabilities and then user experience design. Um, but uh, what augmented reality uh, can do for the world, what, which is why I'm so excited about it, is it can create a new way for us to experience data uh, and uh, other experiences more intuitively. Uh, and by intuitively, um, you know, the, the standard definition that someone would say for augmented reality is to be able to see technology, i.e. Uh, uh, data and experiences uh, overlaid over the world around you. And that's super important uh, because it's not just a, a fun tool or like a, a, wow, it's so cool that I can see a cartoon character jumping on my table. It's a more intuitive way for us to experience things um, because we've been experiencing things 
like that uh, for thousands of years. That's another kind of psychological premise uh, that I think is driving a huge uh, change in the way that we design things technologically uh, is for us to become more intuitive with the way that we interact with not just the real world, but interact with technology. And so, for example, a great example of this for augmented reality is something that Google Maps and Apple Maps have done recently is um, instead of viewing a map on your phone screen and having to decipher that code, it's it's a key, it's not the real world you're seeing on your phone, it's, it's a, a graphic, and, and then figure out how that graphic relates to the world around you, right. which has been kind of the current user experience for everything for us. Um, what Google Maps have done with augmented reality is they overlay the um, the directional markers over the street in front of you in real time, and that's much more intuitive uh, because because so much easier because before before tech um, we used to have signs everywhere we would read markers wayfinders uh, and before that we had someone say you know go down the street there take a left walk down there you'll see a big red sign uh, that's your destination you know that's uh, that's the grocery store and so we're, we're so used to using uh, the world around us for visual cues um, uh, and then you know along comes computing um, we decided that given the technological constraints of computers in the early days and even uh, up until recently that we would reinvent the way that we interacted with things uh, i.e we put everything on screens everything in text which is very unintuitive for us psychologically. Um, you know, we'd have to read information instead of it being said to us. Um, and uh, looking at augmented reality, augmented reality isn't just this new creative tool. Uh, it is the ability for us to overlay uh, experiences and data into the world in the same way that we've been consuming experiences and data for thousands of years. That that's very interesting. I'm I'm specifically I am specifically intrigued by the the sign example because I'm thinking, uh, oh wow, we can slowly take into the augmented reality all of the layers that we right now need to infer something, and we can then leave the real world to the creative aspects, to the you know what does a beautiful room look like without having to worry about the functional aspects because we can abstract them and so that can have a really big impact also in how the world around us looks like right oh absolutely um and uh, there's this convergence of the real world and technology is a very scary thing for a lot of people scary uh, i mean for it's terrifying for Matt, yeah for sure um do you think they should be scared I, I, I don't know. Oh. And uh, I will say that in the same way that someone who was talking about the internet 25 years ago, if they were asked, should you be terrified of the internet, wouldn't know enough back then to say yes or no. I think there's definitely been a lot of scary things with the internet, but it's brought us so much good and, and so much progress. Um, so what's the downside here that you're thinking about? So potential negative scenarios for specifically augmented reality. Every time we have a new computing paradigm, every time there's a new shift in the way that we can use and deploy technology and experiences, there's always uh, the ability for us to go too far. 
Um, but we as society, again, looking at the psychology of a, a community, um, you know, going back to my roots, if you have a community together, there's always ways to solve problems communally. Um, if, if, if someone in the community goes too far, you, there's a risk community can bring them back. Uh, we, we saw this with social media, for example, social media was, uh, was viewed as this amazing way to connect people. Uh, this incredibly new technology that everyone could get on and, uh, be able to share experiences online. Um, and then, you know, the past few years, I'd say the past five years, you started to get this pushback from society saying we've gone too far with social media. It's causing issues within our society. Uh, we need to figure out how to resolve that uh, and focus on uh, bringing, reining in the way that social media is being used for it to become uh, mm -hmm. something good for society. There's still challenges now. Of course. But here in augmented reality specifically, what would you say are the like like scenarios in which you you'd be like yeah that would probably be pushing it too far so um there is a, a chance with augmented reality the the biggest um uh the biggest fear with augmented reality is that we will be pasted with all of this uh all of these experiences that we don't want in our real world i.e our um like yeah our, our, our visuals every day will look like piccadilly circus or Times Square. But you can always remove your the glasses if they're removed. Exactly. You can always remove your glasses uh, and you wouldn't expect society to enable that because uh, it wouldn't be something that would progress us as, as humankind. So there's always the possibility for you to then define your augmented reality. What tools are important to you and what aren't. In the same way that, you know, which apps do you want on your phone and which ones do you not want on your phone? Yes, but then if you live in a precarious environment, financially, for instance, what do you want on your augmented reality? Well, maybe I don't want to have ads, but I do want the financial rewards of ads. So yes, leaving the choice open is is good, but at the same time, leaving the choice open to people that have no choice is as good as not doing so, right? Yeah, absolutely. That That's a really good point. So... I don't know if we should abstract the choice in the first place and it should be just kind of, yeah, no ads that indirectly, yeah. but then at the same time that hinders innovation because then you need to find other business models. Which is where um, the rise of Web3 as part of the whole metaverse and future computing discussion is a really interesting and, and, and timely concurrent innovation. So what what's your... We've talked about the history and we're talking yeah. about um, about right now. So the augmentation of today, metaverse is the next step, mm -hmm. I think. Do you agree? What do you envision it like? Well, I think the metaverse is a piece of shit, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I, if I'm allowed to say that. I, I really think uh, it's a piece of shit. Uh, and um, I've been very vocal about that. Um, and it's not necessarily me taking a swipe at the innovators. Um, it's uh, the perception uh, that has been built around what the metaverse truly is, I think is actually detrimental uh, to where we as um, society will land with these technologies. Uh, I think the, uh, the metaverse uh, uh, that has been communicated to the general public uh, has been, uh, I hate to use that word, augmented or it has been influenced by a need for fast innovation and fast monetization uh, to prove out concepts. 
which is why the um, the metaverse per se is understand understood by most people as being these virtual reality worlds, these games that you can buy things and sell things and wear, um, uh, wear digital clothing uh, and meet up. Um, and I think uh, that's um, been overall detrimental to the evolution and the perception of, of what great technologies are being created and right now. Well, why did we end up there? Like what happened? There's, um, there's a quick segue uh, to monetization of the metaverse uh, through uh, virtual reality and animated games, uh, mainly because the lowest hanging fruit uh, for metaverse companies um, are gamers um, and their ability to easily adopt similar um, user experiences uh, as kind of the foundational uh, users of these uh, ecosystems. But what we've seen is that even gamers have been pushing back massively on metaverse ecosystems. You know, look at the, uh, the, the user numbers for uh, metaverses like Decentraland and the Sandbox. Uh, I think the figures came out recently that s some of these platforms had le less than 100 users a day uh, and they've got a you know two point four billion dollar valuation, and they've been pumping huge amounts of cash into you know forcing these platforms uh, to continue to work. Uh, you know, look at the declining user numbers on Facebook's Horizon platform, um, and so uh, there has been this big pushback, I think, because the, the the general public hasn't understood what uh, incredible uh, utility. Uh, the metaverse ecosystem, which includes virtual reality, AR, includes Web3 components, blockchain, and crypto. So the pushback has arrived because you think that the big corporations thought that metaverse was going to be an... I mean, they attacked the low-hanging fruit, which was gaming. Easy segue. Way. Easy yeah. segue, and they did that poorly. I think so, yeah. Okay, poorly in what, in what regards... Mm, I mean, I assume each one of them did a different mistake or did they all fall in the same trap? Uh, I think the general consensus, and this is uh, where we talked about, you know, why communication has evolved is because there's been a genuine need for uh, an evolution in the way that we interact. Mm -hmm. With the metaverse, looking at it again, I think one of the biggest pushbacks from the public, especially what I hear, is it sounds cool, but why do I need it? I don't need it. Right. There is so many problems. There's no utility for it. Um, and that's uh, a massive uh, beast to try and slay is you're trying to build something that people don't think they need. Uh, and um, that's where, um, you know, potentially the gaming segue um, has worked in some areas. And I'm, I'm not discounting there's a lot of games out there. Like, mm -hmm. you know, Roblox is doing incredibly um, and, a, and a bunch of other uh, gaming type metaverse platforms but when you try and um, uh, create a platform that has very poor utility uh, then um, uh, then you potentially miss the mark interesting and so you think that the experiences that are built on top like especially entertainment experiences so most uh, mostly gaming are not what people are going to buy into when it comes to metaverse and so what do you think is going to be the first actual thing that people do buy into when it comes to metaverse so there's there's this concept of um that a, a new industry needs a killer app 
if you have a killer app for an industry, it breaks it open. People thought Pokemon Go was the killer app for AR, but really the utility of Pokemon Go was not the AR function. It was the entertainment. It was the entertainment and the mapping and uh, the ability to uh, to roam around your real world, uh, but not see the Pokemon in the real world because most people switched off the AR feature. Ah, uh, and, and so, so it wasn't really the innate uh, the, the killer app. So it wasn't the, I mean, it was AR, but it wasn't in the sense that that it wasn't that wasn't why it was so successful. Interesting. That was a great marketing tactic and a great wow factor, um, but it wasn't the thing that kept it successful. And if you look at the way people use Pokemon Go these days, which is still doing great, uh, it's not the AR features that are driving Pokemon Go. Aha, that's interesting. It's very, I had previous guests Jordan on the podcast and yeah. it was like, oh, that was the killer app. And yeah. I was saying, oh, that was not the killer app. It was absolutely not. And uh, what was the killer there, there definitely hasn't been a killer app yet. Uh. Um, and before the killer app, you, you need something. And a good friend of mine um, uh, talks about this very heavily. Um, you need an enabling application, something that's not, you know, the mass adoption necessarily but something that makes sense to the right people. Something that really makes sense as, as a utility for people to understand this is why there is a need for the future of computing. This is why there is a need for us to move from this, which is perfectly great for a lot of people. You can put your information in your pocket, carry it around everywhere, consume a lot of things, um, but you really need to find those enabling use cases. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think many, if any of the metaverse applications that have come out, I at least haven't seen anything big enough um, to warrant an enabling application where people start to understand why they should use this new technology. Um, and uh, I think it's coming very soon. Um, there's uh, been a lot of enabling applications in VR. Uh, so, for example, you know, there have been some games that have been killer apps in, in VR gaming. If you look at Beat Saber, that was a killer app for uh, for VR. So we already had the enabling app in VR. Uh, we, we, we have, uh, to an extent, that VR has become extremely um, uh, credible for things like education, training, um, psych psycho psychological... Um, uh, uh, how do you call it, a psychological um, treatment. So, for example, there's there's a couple of cool companies in London that work with the NHS that use VR to bring anxiety down in people like ambulance drivers uh, after they've had trauma. Um, and so VR, VR has extreme utility there and is, is pushing very heavily into that side of things. Uh, but augmented reality uh, and the metaverse as a whole ecosystem hasn't had that enabling application. So I think um, to kind of... Uh, cut this like massive rabbit hole a little bit a little bit short is that the metaverse is such a huge thing it's such a huge beat beast is that you need the enabling and the killer applications in VR first and then you need the enabling applications and killer applications in AR and then you need um, you know the mass adoption of of things like you know web3 um, and uh, and blockchain communities and crypto communities to all kind of merge together into creating the new way that we interact with technology. Okay, so you see a future in which VR and AR both have a space. Oh, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. explain to me, so AR is going to be focused from what I understand from what you said, more on the functional overlay, uh, whilst a VR is more experiential. 
Yeah. So? Oh, absolutely. Okay. That's that's perfect. Uh, and which is why I think AR will be so much bigger. AR, AR, because you think will be so experience much. Experience is less valuable than function. It's uh, for 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 this that statement for me to hold true. Uh, you look at the way that we've interacted historically as well. It's VR is you disappearing into a different environment. Uh, for example, like what we used to do with a television, um, which we now do on our phones and laptops and, and where else. Um, it's ex it's experiential. It's a way for us to uh, to duck away from reality. In the gaming side, it's a way for, for us to be entertained, ducking away from reality. And gamers have done amazing things for mental health. Um, a lot of... Um, people find solace in games. Um, but then also looking at the, the medical side of things, it's a way to uh, duck away from trauma. It's a way to duck away from reality to process something. Um, uh, whereas augmented reality is uh, much more utility-based. It's how do we consume the information and experience that we need to function as human beings in the real world in the same way that all of our utility apps on our phones uh, enable us to consume data for our real world interactions. You know, uh, have music on in the background in our real world. Um, have Google Maps for navigation, book a car, um, communicate with someone. Right, but at the same time, as we get better also on the VR side, I think it could go each into some of the real world's things that we do in real world right now into virtual reality. So it, yeah. I don't know how much of the real world we say like this, for instance, um, you know, you don't really need to go to work that much anymore. Uh, there are there's yeah. remote working and so on. And so is it possible that the overlay on top of real world that augmented reality adds could be less than the new application that eats completely on this side that is virtual reality? That's where it becomes super exciting. <laughs> what do you mean? That's where That's where you get to that merge point of how much is virtual and how much is real and how much do I need real or how much do I want real and how much do I need and want virtually? Because you can, you can kind of go so far as to say uh, that you, like, is augmented reality still augmented reality if everything is virtual apart from the chair I'm sitting on and I can see my physical chair. Right. Um, and that's where um, we as humanity will need to figure out where we land and where we're comfortable with and I don't know. In the same way that people were terrified of the internet or email, even they're terrified of email. I don't want. They were. Yeah, uh, there, there's there's this incre incredibly um, obviously dated um, TV interviews from the '90s of uh, TV presenters uh, discussing that they they definitely don't want their communication to be sitting inside a computer because it, it's it's terrified and anyone can send an email to my inbox and I have no control over who can message me. Uh, and you know, you know, it's funny. I get some of this data that I guess, so, yeah, it's hilarious. Yeah. But at the same time, I see it today because when I bring up wallet to wallet messaging, people are like, so anybody, all the brands are going to eat you alive. And then it's like, yeah. ah, maybe, but so everybody but has don't. email access as well. Yeah. Now that I think yeah. about it, yeah, it's very true. I didn't know about how I'm shocking yeah. email. And so the question is like for us as humanity, how far are we comfortable to go? And I don't think anyone knows the answer to that mm. right now. Um, What's your guess? I think we'll go too far, and then and then we'll come back to come back to some state of equi equilibrium, like we do in in a lot of different spaces. Do you think there will be 
a societal norm or do you think we'll have splittage? So will there be, be I ask you specifically because yeah. of course you grew up in the hippie environment, which means that it's, it's an abstraction, yeah. right? And so do you think there will be communities more and more that choose that direction or are we converging? I think there's huge gentrification of, of the way that we use technology and we don't even realize it now as, as a you know, first world society. We don't realize now how many people still don't have access to the internet. Um, we don't realize now how many people have never touched a smartphone in their life. And there's a huge percentage, uh, the, the world that has been left behind. Um, and that's only accelerating because our innovation, and our, our tech progress uh, in the world is accelerating faster than it ever has uh, to the point where um, you know, if you're in the AR industry and you see what's been created already, most of the world doesn't even know it exists. Uh, and it's mainly because um, perhaps there is a need for uh, consumer or societal education before this technology gets dropped uh, onto people's laps. No, technology is almost faster than the, uh, the rate at which we as humans can uh, become comfortable with the evolution. Um, you know, uh, a lot of people, when, when I tell them I'm in the AR space, they'll say, haha, Google Glass was a complete failure. AR is, is, um, is a joke. Bad. Yeah. Um, but I'm like, well, okay. Um, it was a, an incredible piece of tech. It was just very misunderstood and it wasn't ready. The, the world wasn't ready for Google Glass at the time. Um, Google Glass actually, um, is being used to a huge extent in the industrial space right now, which people don't, people don't realize that it, it found its niche in the industrial space as a hands-free device. When you say to a huge extent, can you give us an idea? Because I, I, I've heard that it's like repurposed. I don't, I don't have the unit figures, um, but uh, it's being used uh, very effectively. Um, uh, Google's still selling a lot of units. Uh, Just and Or hands-free. Uh, hands-free? Ha hands-free technology interaction. Okay. Which, uh, you know, for example, if you're an abattoir worker processing meat, uh, you can still get your data without having to touch anything. Uh, and that's another um, interesting uh, evolution to AR, which is will become important for us uh, as AR becomes good enough with technology. All of our interaction with technology is hands-free as well, um, and so that's where you, you go into this uh, reason to why would someone want to use this new uh, paradigm of computing, which is AR, is one of one of the one of the smaller uh, factors is that you you no longer have to one, look down at the phone, and two, use your fingers uh, as your um, access to communication because it's a very inefficient thing. We, we, we get information by, by tapping on a screen, and that, that's super inefficient. Right. There is a, <clears throat> there is a, it's a, it's an interface which we, if we can abstract, is probably better, right? I mean, there is some material rust in the way as I tap on the screen. Yeah. I lose because, I mean, it becomes almost automatic, right? It's not like we have yeah. to look for the letter and everything. So it's almost embedded right now. But I do think there is still a little bit that we can abstract and make better for sure. It, it, it is a, a completely. But when, when you look at it on a very fundamental level, uh, for us to, um, uh, to be able to connect with um, data and experiences by, by using our fingers to tap on a screen is a very inefficient thing to do. Right. And and so hands free does it mean voice control uh, or does it mean eyes control? Like what does it actually look like? Also, also the uh, the, the big 
factor as to why I think AR is going to win uh, in terms of a new computing platform that supersedes the smartphone uh, and why I think that this technology is inevitable and it's not dead, it's not going anywhere, it's only um, steamrolling forward at the speed at which one, we can innovate on and two, the, the world and consumers are ready for it is because it's not a technological problem that's being solved. It's a psychological problem that's being solved. Uh, and this is the same reason why I founded Beam um, is it's, it's an evolution in the way that we can interact with technology from a human-centered design process. If you look at, and you, you mentioned voice, and this is why I, 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 it, this was triggered, is voice is incredible because it mimics the way that we've received data for thousands of years. Before technology, I would have asked you, what's the weather like tomorrow? And you would have said it's sunny and 12 degrees. And that's how I would receive my information. And my subconscious and my psychological needs are met in that aspect because we've been doing this for thousands of years. Along comes tech over the last 70 years and has completely rewritten the book or re, uh, uh, completely changed the way that we uh, interact with interesting data. So it gives us a chance to go back to what we Now we're going back full circle. Uh, so voice is incredible uh, and voice is not going anywhere either because psychologically it's, it's very powerful. effective for us. It's, it's, the, it's the, the height of human-centered design uh, for us to interact with um, with a source of information. Uh, previously, before technology, it was other human beings. Now it's Siri or Alexa or the internet translating itself into something we're psychologically familiar with. The question would be, there, is there some cases in which we don't want to go full circle and go back to what feels intuitive and where we're okay with, oh, it's not as intuitive, but it's much more effective. Is there some instances in which that's possible? I'm thinking Neuralink, right? Yeah. If you can communicate directly, you wouldn't need voice. Oh, that, that, that's, that's a superhuman aspect because we've never been able to, at least I haven't been able to uh, be telepathic. So that, that's where you go even further, which is where Neuralink goes a completely, uh, completely like, like in, into a completely different realm because it, it, it makes us superhuman. Is that super reality? <laughs> well, if we coin the term now, well, we, I, we, <laughs> we claim it. Super reality on sure. this podcast is the term we have for superhuman AR and uh, technology interface interaction. I'm sure someone has tried to claim uh, something similar, but if nobody has, then we do. We've and got it. We've got it. So it's interesting. So anything that doesn't go back in full circle is falls under that definition it, it could or it could be if it's less effective for us uh so you know for example we, we don't want to go back to horse riding uh, because you know driving a car or fly, flying a plane is faster um but if you look at the designs that we've done uh in the computing and the smartphone side of things from a human experience perspective um like i said with typing using our fingers uh to input information is That's because pre-launched information was yeah. what was needed from the computer it, it, it's extremely inefficient and, and so you know i think a lot of us would love uh, to just be able to like talk in our room and the computer understands exactly what we're trying to get it to do like for example you know uh, with ai these days if you you know type in you know i want um you know i want an olive tree 
um, in a Monet painting uh, with uh, McDonald's in the background, AI can generate that for us. We want that same kind of seamlessness uh, with the way that we interact with technology. And that's why uh, going back to that I, I, I could you know bet everything on that AR is not going anywhere, it's inevitable because it is a way for us to interact with technology uh, in a much more seamless way than what we have now. Especially with the addition of AI that you've just added as well, because yeah. we can interpret language, we can interpret eye signal or whatever yeah. we need. So we can infer real life with smart language that adds on top of it. Okay, so if we try to get practical, we have mentioned the Google Maps mm -hmm. uh, example. We have mentioned the workers yeah. using the Apple um Sorry, the, the Google Glass. Right, Google Glasses. Um, what other strong niche applications do you think we have? So when it, when it comes to creating something that's useful, uh, something of utility, uh, you need to create tools that uh, we use on a daily basis that can become more efficient, more effective, um, or more intuitive right. um, within this new paradigm for people to want to use augmented reality. Uh, and um, naively, me as a founder, uh, five years ago, I chose the most complex challenge to solve, which was how do you um, create or recreate the same psychological and subconscious triggers in distance communication that a physical meeting has Rural. using augmented reality. If I would go back, I would create a delivery, a food delivery app or something else. Um, but yeah, so for me, that was this, this incredible epiphany that one, you know, my career in commodities at the time was not, um, aligned to who I wanted to become as an individual and who, how I was raised. And there was a huge deficit in, in my career choice. Um, and I wanted to figure out uh, a way to align what I was doing career wise with who I wanted to become as a human being. Um, and like I said, naively, I thought. This challenge is big enough for me as an individual to take on and to um, to create something that the world has never seen before. Mm -hmm. And so, for, as a, from a utility perspective, Beam um, basically enables any human being to stream themselves in real time. So, it's the, the the real human being live streamed into its digital self in someone else's space. So it's replicating the um, the same psychological and subconscious triggers that a physical meeting has. And um, it gives you things like uh, high definition, full body, real human, um, virtually present in someone's space. Uh, and that present is important because we haven't had that uh, in, its, uh, in its most efficient form in distance communication yet. When you mean presence, you mean full body picture. So it's not just full body picture because that's the visual input. Presence is a psychological subconscious thing that's required. So presence is the output. Presence is the output. It's, it's, it's the ability for your subconscious uh, to uh, build trust, build credibility in the same way that you're physically there. Right. And so that, that, that sense of presence is, I would say, the missing piece uh, to distance communication that we haven't had yet uh, in our e evolution. Uh, for our subconscious to be able to get, you know, full trust, full credibility, intimacy, emotion, uh, and have that 
not only uh, transferred, but received in the same way that we do in a physical face-to-face -face interaction. Right. Um, I believe our tech can be an enabling application for augmented reality, or at least one of them. Um, but it needs for, for augmented reality to become useful. Uh, we need enough of these utility applications for people to, to be like, oh, I get it. On specific niches. Uh, and again, some people would say, you know, why do I need to be full body present in someone else's space? One, you know, the, uh, the short answer to that is, you know, why do you need to meet someone physically ever? Uh, you need that emotion. You need that. Um, that most effective way to communicate. But two, uh, there's also some circumstances where it's impossible to be physically present. We had that during the pandemic, so we went to the be next best thing at the time, that was Zoom video. Um, but for example, um, we're doing a university study, I, I can't say who it is, it's a prominent American university, um, where uh, we're using our technology to uh, beam uh, family members of children uh, in uh, the children's hospital who have gone through cancer treatment, uh, where the, 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 the family members are not able to be physically present, uh, sometimes for months. Uh, and having uh, the individual in this aspect, the child, uh, have that same feeling of presence oh. from their family, having, having them in their space digitally, um, is, is one of these places where you, you look at a technology evolution like, like uh, Beam, like what we're doing, and you think, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and of course, I mean, that's literal proof of if you can get and capture the reactions of how people feel, that is proof that there is an additional layer that you're unlocking with augmented reality yeah. besides Zoom. If you get that different reaction in the, in how people feel. Have you gotten that yet? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so our, our deployments, uh, the most effective deployments of our tech, um, yeah, we've taken a, a page out of Sky's book which is you know, the lowest hanging fruit for an evolution in communication is is uh, really pushing on that intimacy, those connections that are super important mm -hmm. to us as human beings uh, are the most effective. Um, and that's where, you know, uh, going to market uh, with those uh, pieces of communication, we have a lot of um, partnerships in the educational space as well. Uh, we're talking about Zoom fatigue, uh, actually having connection uh, with students and teachers or between students and teachers uh, using a medium where there is presence um, are, are those places where we can prove out our technology and where people will see what's done there and say, okay, this makes sense. Okay. Um, you'll, you'll always have people who will push back and say, well, why do I need this new technology? The old technology is perfectly good. Of course. You know, ask that to people who push back on Skype and video conferencing. Ask that to people who push back on the telephone. Uh, there was definitely uh, bad press for the telephone in the early days. You know, is it going to steal my soul? Uh, because you know, you know, my voice and my my um, personality is being not transported across this digital <laughs> digital wire. And I don't know where it's going. That's funny. Um, and it's going to ruin relationships and and connections because people won't need to meet each other anymore. Yeah. When the telephone was invented. Interesting. And. <clears throat> I love it. In, the applications make a lot of sense. If I go on the tech side, I do see still some things that are like, I wish, like I, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, whether we still have some barriers to unlock before we can actually have those applications successfully. Because if I see someone wearing AR glasses, 
I do see how that can change emotionally and make it feel much, much a deeper connection. However, if I point somewhere with a smartphone, I don't know if that if that emotional experience happens. Yeah. So what can we do today with, I, I know you're platform agnostic, yeah. right? Yeah. What can we do today that already does work on the smartphone? And what are the sort of next steps? And do you think that these shift towards transparent glasses as well that so you can see the eyes, for instance, needs to happen? Sort of where are we heading and what are the bottlenecks? Yeah. So the two bottlenecks uh, are like two sides of the same coin. Uh, the first one is what are the capabilities of the technology that we have today? Uh, and the second one is um, we as a society, how are we going to react or accept that technology as it comes to market? Um, we've had uh, technological bottlenecks for many years. Um, historically, augmented reality, especially on the hardware side, has been heavily over-promised and under-delivered, under uh, which has caused a lot of friction to the second part of that coin, which is consumers willing to adopt the technology if they've been promised this perfect, um, amazing technology and has always been lackluster or disappointing. Um, and so that first bottleneck um, is if we're looking at yeah, we've seen a lot of stop and starts with AR in terms of its curve of adoption and and the uh, the innovation side of things. But um, right now, uh, there an announcement a couple of weeks ago with a company that I absolutely love uh, and uh, full disclosure that uh, we're working with, uh, Qualcomm uh, has finally uh, brought a, a new microprocessor to the market which enables augmented reality glasses to look like a set of prescription glasses. The processors are small enough that you can inject them into a set of Ray-Bans. Uh, and that's one of the big, uh, again, the two sides of the coin is one is the tech uh, in a position uh, to uh, firstly provide the experience that is, uh, that is good enough for a consumer to want to use this new computing platform. But on the other side, is the consumer willing to adopt that piece of technology? Uh, and so Platform just released their uh, AR2 processor uh, and announced their partnerships with about 16 different companies like LG, Niantic, obviously the next segue for the Pokemon Go company to go fully in on augmented reality as a platform, um, uh, Oppo, Xiaomi, and a bunch of other companies um, are all using Qualcomm's new technology to create Ray-Ban style form factor for AR glasses. Uh, and so... Have you tried one yet? Uh, I haven't tried that one. Um, uh, although Qualcomm announced it about two weeks ago. Um, I'll, I will let you know when I have. Uh, well, it will be soon. I'm sure of it. Uh, nice. But uh, if you look at the barriers for adoption, it's, it's two sides of that same coin. Is, is the technology, um, is it ready for the market? Is the market... Uh, ready for the technology. And we haven't got there yet with AR. We've seen that a couple of companies kind of trailblaze and try and break the market open themselves um, and failed. Uh, you know, Google with Google Glass and then companies like Magic Leap um, put a lot of money into a headset that was ultimately not adopted well by consumers. Um, and uh, what that's done is it's caused a lot of hesitancy with consumers. It's caused hesitancy with investors uh, and um, kind of put a sour taste in the mouth of a lot of people for AR. 
of course. Um, but what is happening in the background um, with you know the biggest AR companies are the ones that most people don't even know are into AR. You know, Qualcomm is one of uh, the companies that could win the AR space on the operating operating system side and also on the hardware side. But most of the general public don't know Qualcomm and don't know mm. what Qualcomm does. Um, Apple has been very tight-lipped about their AR um, uh, plans, apart from continuously saying that AR is one of the most important technologies to the future of Apple. Um, and there is, you know, a likelihood of uh, a big announcement within Apple uh, early next year uh, on the AR side. Early next year? Early next year. Why do you think early next year? My bet is Q1. Q1 next year, big announcement. Yeah. What makes you think so? Uh, one, the maturity of the industry. There's a lot of companies announcing technologies that would rival Apple's tech coming to market. Mm. Uh, and two, their acquisitions uh, of late have been very strategic in terms of showcasing that they're very uh, far down the line in their maturity of, of one, their hardware product, also their software. Uh, and three, uh, over the past six months, they're hiring uh, has been extremely interesting. Uh, hiring a lot of content creators for the AR space. Uh, they're um, going up. Apple TV, but wow. make it AR. Uh, Apple Fitness, but make it AR. Um, but you would guess if they are hiring now for six months, it's not like you can build a lot. It makes, it's a trigger. For me, it's a, it's a good alarm if it's content creators because yeah. that can be uh, maybe a little bit more than six months. It depends what kind of creations. But a lot of hiring right now for Q1, maybe. It seems also how much can you actually build in six months? So there's, there's, a, there's a fundamental step that Apple hasn't done yet, uh, which uh, assists in the uh, success of a new technology. And that is opening up um, the development of solutions, firstly to their existing partners, uh, i.e. The, the existing companies that are leveraging Apple's ecosystem, uh, companies like Spotify, Netflix, you know, those types of companies. Um, and secondly, the, the, the core developer ecosystem. And that step hasn't been done just yet. Uh, so uh, betting on an announcement from Apple uh, early next year uh, would be a bet that Apple would stake their claim on the industry, announce that a headset is, uh, is visually there and that uh, developers will receive them very gotcha. quickly, very soon. Gotcha. Uh, the rumors are that Apple has put in orders for 1.5 million devices uh, with production either already underway uh, or fired into gear in Q1. 1.5 million. Which, you help me? which doesn't sound like a lot. Yeah. For Apple, it doesn't sound like a lot until you remember that the first iPhone that launched with Apple had less than a million units sold in its first year. Um, there's always a segue into a new experience that, that's not zero to 100. Apple won't replace the smartphone, the iPhone, with AR glasses next year. Uh, the adoption rate will uh, will be a trickle uh, because we haven't received you. Uh, uh, we haven't achieved the point of utility with AR just yet. Until AR glasses, i.e., a set of Ray Bans sitting on your face that can replicate everything this device can do, you won't have uh, AR glasses supersede the smartphone. Well. But you think that this microprocessor and this reduction and how visually appealing it is could be that the processor is as good as a MacBook. Uh, and so uh, you can create um, high definition experiences. Uh, in the case of our company, you can create 8K visuals uh, of a 
uh, of a life-size human being in your space, i.e. the human being looks so good that you can see the stubble on someone's face or the weave in someone's shirt. You just need as good of cameras. Exactly. So, so, so right, right now we have 4K cameras in phones uh, and 8K is, 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 is available in some phones already as well. That's interesting. How will cameras look like considering, okay, think, take Beam, right? Yeah. And, and take, I want to see you and have a normal interaction. I want your full body picture and I want to talk to you from very up close. Where are these cameras going to be placed and how are they going to look like? So most AR glasses um, that are coming to market, uh, Apple isn't unknown so far, but uh, for example, Qualcomm's processors uh, work wirely, wirelessly in combination with a smartphone. Right, so you think smartphone here, glasses. So smartphone becomes a capture device uh, and powers part of the experience and glasses become the viewing device for everything which is on your phone. Right, you cannot have everything on the on the glasses because yes. the other person is moved. Like, oh, I cannot film myself. <laughs> That's exactly. the simple. Exactly. So yeah. I need a second point of structure. Yeah. And so for the next um, four plus years, uh, the smartphone will still be the dominant uh, piece of technology that we as consumers carry around in our pockets. Uh, and the Apple Watch, uh, sorry, the Apple, I just, uh, I just beat myself to the punch. Mm. The, the, this, the Apple Glass or any smart glasses uh, that, are, that are AR glasses will be viewed as an accessory for a better experience. Uh, in the same way the Apple Watch became an accessory for a better experience to become hands-free or to use your device uh, in a way that doesn't impede your hands or if you're jogging or fitness or anything like that. When do you think we'll give up phones? I would say it's at least four years away. Phone? To give up phones? Yeah. Four? I would say it's at least four years. So only four? It could be only. Uh, just given the evolution in the hardware on in the AR space that I've seen in the past two years. That would be insane. Um, but then again, if you look at um, the adoption rate in the world, um, if we're saying we, it's, you know, firstly the prosumers and then it's uh, people that can afford okay. now, the highest technology out there because we still have people without internet connection. But I'm, I'm also thinking, you know, there is some things that are right now on phone that you cannot really, I don't see ourselves, for instance, crawling. At, do I? Like, do you think we'll be scrolling through the AR glasses much, much rather instead of being on your phone could well be um that that's another uh, but they're not blackout right that, they're not blackout no but you, like for example with apple the rumor is is that they are both they're blackout virtual reality glasses and also augmented reality glasses but well but that would be a whole headset it, it could be or it could be something as small as but isn't that completely because because the reason i got excited about the transparent glasses that look normal is because yeah. people wear glasses all the time and it exactly. doesn't hinder how we interact if I if I have a big headset, I kind of get yeah. scared that we. That's not. a segue. That's definitely a segue. The the big headset, and that's partly due to the form factor constraints around the size of the batteries and and microchips. Partly which Qualcomm has solved now. Um, but if if you're looking at um, kind of fundamentally again, it boils down to uh, one is a technology able to create experiences that we want to use, um, and two, are we ready for it? Um, and when you look at scrolling, again, scro scrolling your phone, that's a very, um, again, a very uh, like old 
design factor that's adapted to a technology as opposed to the way that we would interact in the real world um, with you know other real world of giant people. So you could assume that maybe it won't be like, do we want to port scrolling into AR? It'll be what is the more intuitive way for us to consume social media data, for example, or you know fast form factor information in a real world environment. It could be blinking. It could be blinking. Uh, blinking or, it, move. or it could be you know even more nuanced to like that that the algorithms on social become so good that we don't need to scroll fast anymore that we receive less information, but it's more tailored. Because uh, right now when we scroll, a lot of the times we're scrolling past stuff we don't want to see uh, because even though, for example, TikTok's algorithm is you know one of the best social media algorithms out there, uh, we're still scrolling past stuff. But that's also because we have a difference. Not only do you want to be fed something, but you also have moods every day, yeah. right? And so I've noticed that on Instagram, Instagram is particularly receptive, how I felt, yep. it's not for everybody, yep. but I felt Instagram is particularly um, reflective of how you feel that day. So you look at a dog and then all your For You page is just dogs, while TikTok is a little bit more elaborate, I think, and all yeah. the time, it maybe because I use one more than the other, but... Yeah. Um, I do think that there should still be some standard deviation in which someone consuming content wants to be fed something that goes beyond and that you don't know whether you're going to like or not, but that should be part of the experience. Otherwise, there is no exploration of content. Yeah, that that's something that we as humanity will have to figure out. Right, do we want how, how to decide? Um, and but I think what's what's super exciting is that um, what we know is that anyone's prediction of what is going to happen over the next, you know, three, four, five, ten years is probably false because there's there's so much innovation happening right now, and there's 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 so many changes in the way that we use technology that the way that we uh, consume technology, consume data experiences. Uh, is going to be so fundamentally different to the way that we do today that it's it's almost impossible to predict. In the same way that if someone had have told me, I know, 10 years ago, what was 10 years? 10, 10 years was like the iPhone 3 or 4 maybe, that um, our phones would be capable of doing what they are now, back then I would have said, that's crazy. Like, that's insane. Or when I was in high school, um, I got a, a phone very late uh, uh, in in my high school. Um, you know, the the biggest game on my phone was Snake Two, right? Which is you know, if someone had told me then, you know, every, the world was super excited about Snake Two. If someone had told me then that like, hey, Yan, in fifteen years you're going to be able to teleport high definition humans um, and beam them into people's space for communication, I would have said that's crazy. I still have to pay five cents a text message and I have 160 character limit. Otherwise I get charged double. Like I can't, yeah. I can't imagine, <laughs> I can't imagine that we can, you know, live stream, you know, we could live stream, you know, Justin Bieber into 10 million people's rooms for a concert. And it looks like Justin Bieber's on their, you know, living room carpet performing to them intimately. Like we had no idea. Uh, and I think, you know, given that the, the acceleration of our innovation as, as humanity, what's going to be in 10 years is going to blow our minds, absolutely blow our minds. I do completely agree with that. Um, 
And I, whilst I agree that it's like, it's almost, it's completely impossible to get it right in the details. It's good to have a thesis and it's good to think how roughly yeah. it could, it could solve out. And you've given it to us today, I think, unless you have more to infer and add to the thesis of how it's going to look like. I think it's very simple. Like any technology, which, um, becomes more intuitive for us human beings and goes back to, uh, the way that we and our minds specifically process things, um, will inevitably happen with technology voice ar um and and any other technology which enables us uh almost to go full circle with the way that we interact things. the full circle thesis that's it interesting awesome good thank you so much for participating it was phenomenal i really appreciate it and thanks a lot for for having me on. oh for sure thank you